coming straight from the cockpit. It's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go. All right, back in the can for another edition of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void. And I've got an old friend that I haven't had a chance to catch up to in quite some time that has done some ridiculously badass stuff in the sport. And I know you're going to enjoy hearing from him. So tell me, who the fuck are you and what do you do? Hey, what's up, buddy? (laughs) Ernesto Gainza here. I'm a Er professional skydiver. Ernesto! Just living the life, buddy. How you doing? Yeah, I'm doing excellent, man. How the hell you been? It's been quite a while. I know you've been uh, doing all kinds of crazy stuff, but have you been good? Yeah, I mean, life has been really generous as I'm still breathing and, uh, you know, walking and doing my normal stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, I, I like that you said walking. That's always a perk of being able to walk in a straight line if you've been jumping as many years as you have. <laughs> still <laughs> walking much, and yeah. walking straight's good, man. Well, hey, let's just jump right exactly. into it because I got a bunch of stuff I'd like to know uh, and get a bunch of info about you that I don't necessarily have. So, obviously, we're we're going to be talking a lot about skydiving, but specifically, where did you get started with the, the whole extreme sports thing? Because I know you personally as being someone that uh, uh, really likes to uh, push the limits, but do it in a very calculated way. Uh, so, were extreme sports something that was natural to you, or um, was it something that you kind of found your way to? Um, I think, you know, um, we all have this little Superman, you know, these little things that we want to do when we're kids and, mm. you know, jumping out of the wardrobe and all this crazy stuff. But um, I think I'm not really extreme person. I think I do enjoy extreme sports because it gives you the chance to, you know, to do things outside and and have this little fear and adrenaline rush and stuff. But um, I like to live a long life as well. Sure. So, I try to calculate everything I do um, without, you know, losing that fun fact that we all have when we do things like this. But um, um, it's also age. You know, I'm 41 years old, and um, you know, if I break right now, it's not going to be the same healing. So sure, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, now, so, so yeah. if you were always pretty, uh, pretty metered and pretty uh, uh, big on gauging uh, um, risk and stuff, how did you find your way into something like skydiving? Because for people that haven't jumped or if they don't know anything about the sport, from an outside perspective, we look like idiots. Yeah, I think we're a little bit, I mean, I kind of accepted the fact that this is my way of living, so. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) So, yeah. Actually, I discovered skydiving by mistake. Um, (laughs) I used to surf for many years back home in Venezuela. Obviously, we had really good... uh, waves there being in the caribbean sea and getting all the you know uh storms and things coming from the u.s thank you very much sure yeah you're welcome <laughs> yeah so we we used to get a good wave so anyways i used to surf a lot and then a friend of mine told me once uh, he said hey dude i've tried skydiving and i was like yeah so how was it so well, no i did a tandem and then i did the course right away wow and um for me it was like yeah whatever for me it was like yeah i'm not really interested i never thought about skydiving in my life right and then at the end of, at the end of the holidays, I had like five hundred dollars left, and I said, "Okay, well, I really would like to jump." And the guy said, "Well, why don't you do the FF course?" And one of my my friends was also an instructor, so yeah, the whole thing just uh, turned out to be an amazing uh, FF course with a great experience, and uh, and that was it. That oh, wow. was the time in which I knew well, that now, uh, that's what I wanted to do. Did you do it? So you didn't do a tandem; you went straight into AFF. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Nice, nice. I mean, uh, most of the jumpers, yeah. uh, you know, from my generation and beyond were all, you know, uh, tandem passengers or quite a few were tandem passengers first and then got hooked. Yeah, for sure. That Normally that is the way that you, you're supposed to do it uh, if you're smart. <laughs> <laughs> so you started jumping in Venezuela. Yes, I did. And yeah. now what's the sport like there? I mean, I've never jumped in Venezuela. I don't know about the, the federation um, there or the popularity of it. Sure. I mean, it used to be, we used to have two schools, one in uh, San Juan de los Moros, which was the, like the, the oldest school of skydiving in Venezuela, mm. uh, which remained open for many years. And there's been a few schools here and there, but then they, they end up closing as usual. Um, mm. And then I, th- I think skydiving was great, you know, like we had a, it was more like a family thing more than, a, you know, a big drop zone like in the US or any, any other countries. Sure. Um but I think now, due to the, the situation of the country, it's uh, just a few people that can actually afford to jump out of a plane. Yeah, I mean, Venezuela is, is going through rough times these days, yeah? 
It is, yeah. It's a shame. Ah, oh, man. Well, now, so when you were coming up skydiving, I'm guessing even then, uh, um, skydiving in Venezuela was probably a bit of a luxury. Yeah, I mean, back then when I started skydiving, it was uh, still good prices and stuff like this. You could jump and have fun, but then obviously um, things have changed a lot since 2004. So yeah, no, it's I mean that's that's a fair amount of time, and things are changing all over the place. Uh, well, so you you went through your AFF course right then and, and into a bit of a, a family drop zone. But what did your family think of you jumping? Mom and dad, brothers, sisters. What did they? How did they feel? Right, it was really funny because um, nobody said anything. You know, they were like, "All right, cool. Uh, that's yeah. If that's what you want to do, awesome." And my mom was very supportive, and she has always been. You know, like if that's what you want to do and that makes you happy, then go for it. So really, yeah, that was yeah. It was that easy. That actually kind of uh, I maybe I, I don't, I'm yeah. not sure why I'm surprised, but I wouldn't have thought that a, a mother from Venezuela would be okay with her her little boy going out and throwing himself out of airplanes. I would have. Wow, that's very cool. Yeah, I know. It's uh, yeah, no. My mom was great. My sister was great as well. My aunts and everybody was like, "Yeah, cool." I mean, this guy's crazy. But then nobody said anything, or you know, why would you leave um, a stable job for this? Or no, they were super cool. Sure, sure. So, well, now you go through your AFF course, but at what point? What was the point of no return for you? Where you know what what clinched that you were a skydiver? I think um, right after the first jump. I think once that parachute opened. Um, I realized that I wanted to live that emotion many more times in my life. You know? mm. What I just lived, being in free fall and, you know, uh, doing the things that you're supposed to be doing and having fun and, yeah. Well, and you always, again, you struck me as always a very calculated person, but always a very passionate person, too. I mean, uh, there was never, at least to my, from my vantage point, there was never any doubt that you truly loved what it was you were doing. Yeah, I think... Uh, that's one of the biggest problems right now. You know, we live in a society that you've been pushed to get us what they call successful. You know, yeah, mm -hmm. you have to be successful. But what is success? You know, like uh, if you if your measurement of success is to have you know nice cars and nice houses and have a ton of money in the bank, then great. I mean, if that makes you happy, then go for it. Sure. For me, it's just, it's just living in a mountain town, you know, surrounded by nature and flying every morning with my paraglider and my speed wing and skydive, and that's my life. Nice, nice. Well, and I suppose uh, uh, we live in some weird times, especially now as we're recording this. I think the whole world is starting to reevaluate uh, uh, what's important and what makes them happy. Because, uh, uh, exactly. you know, the the people that are, you know, stinking filthy rich are, are locked up in their houses just like we are, even though theirs might be a little bit bigger. Uh, the money that's sitting in their bank account, not, not necessarily doing them any yeah. good, you know. So now, they, still, they still have the chef cooking for them, though. I wish I had that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the whole – I've always been of two minds about that whole uh, um, adage, money won't, can't buy happiness or – I don't know about that. I'm sure it could put a dent in it. I mean, fundamentally, it's not going to make you happy, but it'll sure make shit a little bit easier. <laughs> for sure. No, the thing is, you're a good cook. You see, I don't cook really well. So yeah, oh, fair enough. For me, when you say a chef, is like, wow, you know, like giving me a, a sports car or something like this. You know, yeah. A chef is like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, so now when did you, uh, uh, you became, a, obviously, like we all do, you started out uh, through AFF and, and became an active jumper, but when did you transition into working in the sport, and what were you doing for work before then? Right, so um, I was, uh, basically, I was a lawyer, so um, that was my profession, my career, How, however, I didn't actually do much uh, lawyer work. Mm. I used to work in insurance back then. Okay. And then after I discovered skydiving, I moved to the UK, which um, it, it helped me a little bit to develop the career. In Venezuela, I didn't jump that much. Obviously, in the UK, they don't, these guys don't have the best weather ever either, but then <laughs> I, at least I had the aircrafts. And <laughs> right. Uh, uh, and yeah, and then that was it for me. They at least UK, had the, a little bit in France. They at least had the lift Living capacity France, to get you to the base Spain, of the clouds. Yeah. Well, now Spain's quite popular, though. I mean, uh, especially nowadays with drop zones like Empuria Bravo. But uh, um, so you started hitting Spain around when? So I uh, left Venezuela in 2002, uh, became skydiving in 2003. I started working in skydiving in 2004. Wow. Uh, and then, yeah, I started doing packing, obviously packing parachutes, uh, doing camera work for tandems and formation skydiving and 
every little thing that you have to do in order to survive in skydiving, which is, uh, we all know how it goes. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and that's it. Well, now you, you had said that uh, you did insurance and you worked as an attorney. You know, I, I've been consistently blown away by every guest that I've had on. I always find out a little something that I never knew before. Uh, one of my uh, previous, <laughs> recent previous guests um, that has either aired by now or it will be airing soon, um, I know her as a tandem instructor and a, a camera woman, and it turns out she's got a fucking PhD blows me away and i i'm hey, you see? oh yeah i'm consistently just blown away because uh, skydivers are so alike on the drop zone in regard to our drive to want to jump out of the airplane i and, know you know and and that story is always the same but the backgrounds are crazy now and, and this, yeah. this actually even shocks me more that you say your family didn't say anything when you were giving up a lucrative career at working in insurance and as an attorney yeah, I, yeah. I think my mom's always been super cool. You know, I, I, I have to say that I feel privileged the fact that my mom has always been like this cool with anything that I've decided to do in my life. Right. And I think I think parents, you know, or guardians or whatever you want to call them, they, um, they have a really fundamental job in a kid's uh, life. You know, if you if you're supportive and as long as it's something that you know that makes sense. Uh, sure. Well, it's not as skydiving makes makes more sense. Uh, much sense. Sorry. But, uh, but yeah, you know, I think uh, that's very important. Well, I'm still, and I'm sure you're a bit like me, I still um, shake my head and I can't figure out how it is I've managed to actually earn a living in this sport. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, I mean, how many times have you had someone, you tell them you're a professional skydiver and they always are like, how the fuck do you make money doing that? Pretty much. I think everybody, I tell them that I'm a professional skydiver, that I, they don't really understand what that, that actually means. Right. You know, they... Yeah, it's it's very difficult to explain. So, well, yeah. <laughs> then again, to play devil's advocate, I kind of don't disagree with them because if you ask me what, how a skydiver, what what that is, I can't answer because basically somebody gives me money and I do stuff that I would more than likely pay for if they didn't. Pretty much, exactly. <laughs> right? I'd say that's just, but I probably shouldn't have said that because some the wrong person's going to yeah, overhear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, stop stop advertising, baby. Right? Yeah, no shit. <laughs> So now, what was uh, what was the big catch in skydiving for you? I mean, obviously, there's so many different facets to it. What what attracted you the most right away? Like, in the sport, what were you like? All right, fuck, I got to do that. Right, I think um, from the very beginning, like skydiving itself, um, the sense of not being able to think on anything else but what your your senses are telling you. I think mm -hmm. that's the most amazing thing about skydiving, you know. Yeah, and then. In terms of disciplines, I love a little bit of everything. You know, I did a little bit of uh, formation skydiving and um, free fly and wingsuit flying. And I also do a little bit of base jumping and, you know, the, the, the activities. I think right now um, I'm not a very talented person. I, I'm, I'm a hardworking person, so I'm not um, a person that's going to do something right away. So I have to work very hard. Mm. And uh, wing su wingsuiting for me has been my biggest challenging uh, uh, activity lately. Wow. So, so yeah. Well, skydiving is is an interesting sport in regard to that because you don't necessarily have to have a naturally athletic person or, or a, a naturally easily talented person to end Thank up you. having an amazing Thank skydiver. Thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> I knew you. Yeah, I knew, I knew you were going to go that way. It's true. It's fine. It's true. It, yeah. The the the, the mentality. You're calling me unfit. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. Actually, I happen to know you're quite fit. Uh, but uh, if you say uh, not talented uh, automatically, the fact that you've got the, the mentality that allows you to put in the hard work with something you know you're struggling with uh, is uh, mm -hmm. exactly the key to being a really good skydiver. Because let's face it, this entire sport is very unnatural. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Uh, one of the funny things, uh, you know, I just became recently a um, tunnel instructor, wind tunnel instructor. Nice. Um, which is, yeah, thanks. So it's, a, it's very challenging for a person my size because I'm quite, you know, small. I'm 56 kilos right now. And, you know, it's challenging. And um, when they asked me, what are you doing here? What would you like to do this course for? And I said, well, I really would like to keep learning. Sure. And, uh, and people said to me, well, normally the people would pay money to be coached to become a good flyer. Why would you like to learn how to teach people how to fly? Mm. And I think it's, it's, if you understand the basics for a person like me that is not talented, 
uh, I'll be able to fly better and to teach better. Sure. Well, and and I'm sure you'll agree, especially if you've just gone through this course. Uh, but you are, uh, you know, you've hit every facet of skydiving as well. And the act of teaching Pretty a much. student makes you learn more about what you're teaching. I've never learned more about our sport than when I'm having to dissect what we do and spoon feed it to a student that's not getting it. Those are the biggest learning experiences for me, you know? Absolutely. Well, especially in something like the wind tunnel, when you have the opportunity to break down to to into basics every single step of what's going on. I mean, uh, how hard was the course to become an instructor? Um, I have to say, well, I have to give credit to my examiner. Um, he was really patient. <laughs> it actually took me, it, it was only me. Normally these courses are run with, I don't know, five, six candidates. And mm. this time it was only me. I wanted to do it. So I went to Madrid and, um, the guys at Madrid flight just gave me a hand and, um, helped me a lot. And, uh, it took me around 20 something days. Okay. Um, because obviously I didn't have, it was only me and, you know, I was taking it a little bit at a time. And, sure. Yeah. Well, now, uh, why don't you give him a plug? What's the uh, what's the tunnel and who was the instructor you worked with? Oh, uh, shall I? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Spread <laughs> no, love. No, no, my my uh, examiner was um, uh, Mr. O'Rafferty, uh, which is one of the uh, toughest uh, instru- uh, examiners of uh, wind tunnel in the world. Nice. So, uh, yeah, he didn't put it he didn't put it easy, and uh, he said now because of obviously you who you are, I'm gonna expect more from you which uh, (laughs) (laughs) doesn't that suck so yeah yeah but yeah you know what at the end of the the course i was really fit i looked like a like um i don't know like a midget model or something like this like all ripped and stuff because yeah it's very it's very physical you know it's really physical oh yeah man i mean Uh, yeah whenever you see a girl in the tunnel man you have to say chapeau because it's uh, i was struggling man Oh yeah. Oh no, it's hard work. Well, and again, you you already mentioned your size um being as light as you are in the tunnel. If you were to take somebody like me that's, you know, 90 uh to yeah, roughly 90 kg and I don't know what the fuck yeah, I'm doing, yeah, sure. you're going to work for every bit of it. Cuz you can free fly at my belly nine... speeds. Pretty much, yeah. So, listen, you say 90 kg? Yeah, I'm about 90 kg, 80 87 to 90 kg. Yeah, you tell me that after the crisis uh, happens. It's going to be a lot. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I don't know. Right now, uh, right now the, the house arrest is – or house arrest, the, the uh, quarantining is just making me fat because <laughs> all I'm doing is sitting yeah, and eating, we all, man. We all there, buddy. Don't worry. Well, yeah, it's, it's uh, uh, heavily stocked on wine, although I don't uh, uh, touch a glass of wine until at least noon. So I figure I'm good so far. <laughs> <laughs> and I make sure and work That's out. Awesome. I have to do some kind of exercise to earn the wine that I'm going to drink too much of. So, you know. So, yeah, in regard to the tunnel, it's yeah. kind of funny. It's yeah. definitely hard work and it'll get you in shape. I uh, My first job in the sport was in the old Las Vegas tunnel. Uh, and I beat the shit out of myself in that tunnel for a couple of wow. years. And it will keep you healthy. There's no doubt about that. Oh, yeah. So now, as Absolutely. with your instructor rating in the tunnel, does this mean that you can go to any of the tunnels and now offer coaching or instruct? Well, basically, um, I just got the basic rating, which is a spotter A, which is basically a person that teaches people or takes the first timers that go to the wind tunnel how to fly. So I think that's the toughest rating to get because basically you do get the people that don't know how to fly and right. it's a lot of physical effort. Sure. Um, especially for a person like me. So I have to use a lot of technique to work the, the least as possible. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I can, basically there's a few wind tunnels, plenty of wind tunnels in, the, in, the, in Europe and in the world that accept the kind of rating that I did, which is uh, tunnelinstructor.org. And, uh, and yeah, so um, hopefully, you know, if somebody needs a spotter A and is looking to have me there, I'd be more than happy to go around and have fun with people and, see, and stop and get fit again. Well, see, and, and uh, <laughs> your name might have made the course a little bit more difficult for you to get through, but your name is also what's going to get you those students because there's a lot of people that have followed some of the stuff that you've done, which is super fucking cool. I mean, I was there for one of the world records that you got. 
Um, Thank you, buddy. Yeah, man. I mean, it, that was that was a real accomplishment. And, and I don't want for anybody that doesn't know, please tell them uh, what that particular record was and what led you to uh, uh, to head to try and get this momentous thing. Sure. So yeah, in uh, in 2007, I think uh, Luigi Cani, uh, he was flying very small parachutes. I think he was trying to set his first record back then, you know, mm. flying the world's smallest parachute. And and I think uh, he really uh, motivated me to to fly small parachutes. And and, and I developed my career towards um, canopy piloting, which is um, small and fast parachutes. So, sure. Um, and then in in 2014, I was given the chance to actually develop the record. Mm. To fly with the world's smallest and, and fastest parachute, and uh, and it's really funny because now uh, it's going to be now in on the fourth or the fifth of April coming. It's going to be five or six years. I don't remember. It was in two thousand and fourteen. Jesus, and and yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a lot of years already, man. I'm getting old. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, now I heard uh, um, I I got a message from Luigi. Uh, he's trying to beat the record to get it back home to Brazil. Right. So he's he's currently training now with a with a very small parachute, and I really hope that he obviously um, succeed in his attempt to to get the record back. And and you know, see, I'll tell you, I what, think that's a beautiful thing. It, you highlight of one sport. of the coolest things about skydiving, and that is that in at least every other sport that. I personally know of no fucking way is one athlete rooting for someone else to beat their record or take their you know their achievement. Uh, and here you are. Right. I tell I, I tell you I tell you why. Um, when you're when you're a ski jumper, for example, right? Mm. Is it's a it's a repetitive um, task, right? Mm. You have to you know get in the position jump out, use ballistic aerodynamics and you know, it's the same thing and you work towards improving your launch or your flight or your landing and all these kind of things. Right. When we do projects in skydiving, you have to understand that you're going through a unique experience that only you or perhaps a bunch of people know how it feels. Hmm. And the second thing is that you have to understand is, is that if you love the sport and you want the sport to grow, you have to let things go. Sure. Um, my rec, my record was set, I don't know, five, six years ago. And, um, I wish Luigi now breaks mine and somebody else comes and breaks his, you know, I think that's, <laughs> right. that's a, well, the now, way it should be done. You know? For, for those that don't know about the actual jump, what eventually was the record? What is the record? Cause it still stands. Yeah. Still. Um, so basically I, I flew and landed the world's smallest and fastest parachute. And how, uh, how many was, square feet? Uh, that was a JVX 35 square feet. <laughs> um, we were going to go, yeah, eventually we we're going to go with 33, but then, you know, I I said, well, I think I should keep it a little bit conservative and play a little bit with this first and see if I can go to 33. And then I try with 35 and I say, no, thank you very much. I'll stay with this one. The 35 <laughs> was your conservative choice. <laughs> Fucking hell. Well, yeah. now, and you correct me if I'm wrong with my history, but uh, you and Luigi actually have kind of played tag around this very, very um, specific goal uh, because you, when you initially started training to do this, weren't you jumping his older canopies? Yes, yes. So basically, um, is Luigi and I, we had a really good relationship from the beginning. You know, I always admired him as a canopy pilot. I think, you know, um, he was my, I would say, my, my person to watch because he was very small like me, a little bit heavier, but the same build. Mm. And I needed to see his technique. He was a very good uh, competitor back in the day. And, you know, I, I follow a lot his work. And then basically I asked him, I said, hey, you know, I would like to do this. And uh, he was um, also an amazing person. You know, he said, hey, buddy, no worries. I'll, I have these canopies. I'll send them to you. He sent them to me. And um, yeah. And once after he started now training for the new record, he asked me, hey, why, what would you change? What would you do different? And uh, what, are, what is your opinion? Uh, so I think it was a beautiful relationship having somebody um that it was kind of like my hero calling me to ask me for advice and 
and to tell me, you know, what do you think about this? If we change this and we do that, I think that that was great. You know? Which is epic. I mean, you're, you're talking about flying a parachute yeah. that is literally one third of what I fly. And what I fly for um, the majority of skydivers out there is a small fucking parachute. So it, we're, I don't think, a lot, especially newer jumpers can't wrap their head around just how small a 35 square foot canopy is. I mean. Right. Uh, what was yeah, the, I think we. Go ahead, go we ahead. normally compare with a, with, a, with a single bed sheet, uh, similar size. I mean, yeah. I think it's a little bit smaller than a single bed sheet, oh. but uh, somewhat. So at, at some point, did you not just stand back and look at this canopy and go, I'm fucking insane? You know, the funny thing is, um, when you see the canopy, when the canopies were shipped by uh, New Zealand Air Sports in a normal envelope, like like a very <laughs> tiny envelope. So I would not believe that this thing was my parachute. So when they sent me the envelope, I was like, oh, perhaps they're sending some spare lines or something like this, right. you know. And when I opened it, it was actually the canopy. You know, Jesus. they vacuum, put the thing in a bag, and anyways. Now, did so you? So I put it. I put it. I put it on the floor, right? I extended it on the floor, and I and I said, well, yeah, it looks really small. But the thing is, it's not as small as when you have it on top of your head. Oh, I bet. When you look up and you go. And you go, holy crap! This is really small. Yeah, because we think. On, on the on, on the ground, yeah, on the ground you have no comparison point. Yeah, you see it very small, but once you look up and you go, crap! This is nothing. Well, I mean, most skydivers are when you look up uh, suspended under your canopy, the majority of your view is canopy with a little bit of sky framing it. But jumping a thirty-five square foot canopy, the majority of your view would be blue. <laughs> Sorry, you're funny. Am I, am I you breaking were up, up for a couple of seconds. Sorry. Oh no, it's yeah. all good. No, I was just saying that under a normal parachute, you look up and most of what you see is the parachute. Uh, but with yours, most mm-hmm. of what you would see would be the sky. Exactly. Yeah. Fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. That's just. I mean, well, yeah. let me ask. So when you you started going down this road uh, and you're training on these small canopies, but uh, the one that you actually set the record with was custom made for you, yeah. Sorry, you're cutting up again. Sorry, it's uh, some uh, bad connection. Oh, it's all good. I it's didn't hear good. the last part. Uh, I was just saying uh, the canopy you actually set the record with was custom made for you, yeah? Yeah, the the, the actual record was made for you. I thought So the, the 39 was Luigi, the 46 was Luigi, uh, the 37 was... Uh, Luigi's and the 35 was was built for me. Was fine. So now, when you're when you're starting to go that small, um, are you, you're obviously out of the normal design parameters for a canopy like that. So were you getting blowback mm-hmm. from NZ Aerosports, or were they like stoked to work on this with you? Um, I think they were and they weren't. I think they they had my project in a very difficult or daunting time for their company because they were moving from one place to another and they mm. were kind of like. Uh, but as usual, you know, these guys are awesome and, and helped a lot and, you know, did a bunch of footage for our documentary and uh, anything that could have gone, you know, wrong, they corrected and fixed it before it actually became a problem. And, sure. you know, these guys are awesome. Yeah. Well, now, how did they get around? And you'll have to forgive my ignorance with a lot of the canopy stuff, but don't they They'll design a canopy on a specific size? Like, I think the velocity was designed around, a, I think, a 96, and then they scale up or scale down mm-hmm. for people. Um, but yeah. Yeah. it doesn't translate directly. So, I mean, how exactly you can't fucking test fly a, a 35 square foot canopy. <laughs> I mean, no, no, that's that's exactly that's the thing. So, basically, what they did is they scale as much as they could, uh, including the variation of my drag, my body drag. Uh, so but what they discover is for a canopy that size, the pilot should measure um 45 centimeters. Wow, so to be so the drag and, and the pitch of the canopy are in balance. So, um, yeah, so they have to actually change the, the line trim and do a little modifications in the canopy and, and to make it more stable and to make it fly a little bit more predictable. Sure. Well, and I'm, I, again, I, I was lucky enough to see a lot of this process that was happening as it was happening. But uh, what did you find was the most challenging part of the entire experience? Um, I think physically you get really punished. The openings are quite hard. Mm. Um the way we exited the aircraft was uh, not very common. We were exiting facing the tail of the aircraft. So when the, because the canopy was being debacked from the aircraft and I wanted to see that deployment um, 
um, process as I was exiting the aircraft mm. uh, because I only had a, I had a couple of seconds to decide whether I was going to keep the canopy or not. Mm. So um, if, if I had a malfunction, I had a maximum reaction time of two and a half seconds. If I didn't react in two and a half seconds due to any malfunctions and G-forces, I had to cut away right away. Sure. And if everything everything was fine, then, you know, you see your, your deployment, you ride it through with your hips and you get your removal slider out of the way and then release, you know, get comfortable, release the toggles and Oof. off it goes. Um, now, how many? 100, and 100 maximum. Maximum speed vertical 170 kilometers an hour, <laughs> Fuck. and horizontal I think it was uh, 165, 167. Wow! So you're basically going down as fast as you're going forward. Pretty much, yeah. So wow. like 35 kilometers an hour less than free fall speed. Yeah. Jesus Christ! Now, how many how many times did you have to chop it? How many times did you cut away? Uh, the 35 itself, I think we chopped it seven times. Okay. And landed it, landed it uh, two times, which was the day of the record, and then the following day um, mm. we did another jump. Yeah. Now um, the first few cutaways were intentional, though, were they not? Yes. Yes. So basically, we were trying to um, check the flying envelope of the canopy to see, you know, how much horizontal speed I had, how much glide ratio, how much um, glide I may have after a radical turn. Um, what was the stall point on the rears, how many, you know, how much, how, how the canopy, because the problem with such a small size is they become really unstable on the, uh, on the roll axis. So, mm. uh, any little movement that you do, that canopy turns and after it turns, it dives. So, um, <laughs> I was also flying with, with, uh, some wing suiters on the side and it could become a little bit dangerous if I lean on the harness a little bit too much and I hit them or sure. who knows, but it was sure. a lot of fun, a lot of fun. Well, I mean, hell, in a canopy that small, I think you wiggle your big toe and you're going to turn. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's so I know there's a fair amount of people that listen to the podcast that are, are, are new to or relatively low time in the sport that have no experience under a high-performance canopy. Mm -hmm. uh, so they don't realize that literally just slightly leaning to one side or tweaking your hips left or right is how a lot of the high-performance canopies are turned with no toggle. So I can't even begin to imagine Pretty the responsiveness much. of a 35-square-foot canopy. That actually physically hurts me to say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it was really funny i think uh, one of the jumps i almost uh, hit greg Shelton. uh he was flying on my side and i got really excited i wanted to touch him and then uh, obviously I'm, i made yeah i made, I made the kind of that sounded very inappropriate i wanted to touch him anyways i wanted to you know dock on him give him my hand and uh yeah i almost hit him well, um, well we're not judging in in an, an, another occasion i opened my visor because I think I was breathing really like nervous and they got fog like f all fogged up. Sure. And uh, of course, I was going at 167 kilometers an hour horizontally. So when I opened the visor, I almost broke my neck, you know? God, that's <laughs> it's like opening the visor. Of a... That's, yeah. that's so crazy. Now, there, there's a lot of people, yeah. um, if there's non skydivers listening to the podcast, or again, those low time skydivers that are all they're thinking right now is why in the fucking hell would you want to fly something like that? Um, what was your motivation? Yeah. I mean, what was your drive to, to be able to do something like that? Because let's face it, at the end of the day, there's not even that many skydivers that know about this record, let alone regular people. So you certainly didn't do it to get sure. fame and fortune. No, I think um, I when I do stuff, when I do my projects or personal records, I do it for myself. I don't really do it um, to show people what I'm capable of doing. I think, you know... There's a lot of talented people out there nowadays that can do amazing stuff as well. Mm. Um, I think I do it for myself. And um, I think it's, you know, self-superation. You want to become better. You want to improve. You want to live experiences that nobody has lived, never lived before. Right. And, and that's something that people say to me, yeah, I've done this, I've done that. And, and to me, the fact that it's only three people in the world, in the whole planet out of seven, eight billion people, that knows exactly what it feels how to fly the world's smallest parachute. Sure. That was Luigi Cani when he did it at the time. Uh, Jeff Provenzano when he when he was flying the um, this tiny chaos prototype that they were playing with, and right. and myself. Yeah. So so that's it. I think it's a great experience, and uh, yeah, records are for me, and projects are for me, and 
you know, if I can share it with people and people can learn from them, great. If I can share my knowledge to people to help them out to be the same record or or something different, then I'm always always willing to help because sure. I think that's part of my commitment to the sport. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, it's, while we're still speaking about this particular record, um, you did a very lengthy, um, you were filming everything that was going on and you ended up putting together a documentary about that. So how do people see this? Because we're clearly not touching all the bases of the information with this jump. And I know that there's a lot of people that would love to hear about it. Sure. Um, well, the documentary has been online already for, I think, three years. Um, we have it in uh, different platforms, you know, like um, I think iTunes, uh, Voodoo, uh, Google, Microsoft, and um, I think Amazon is also there. Nice. Um, um, the documentary is uh, it's a little bit about everything, about the record itself and the technical things, about my life and the struggles of, you know, everything that I had to go through to achieve the record. People would see uh, the downsizing uh, um, process. They will see my personal training. They will see everything. So, nice. um, yeah, I mean, have a look, see, uh, see, see if you like it. And if you do, just, uh, let me know and I'll be, make me really happy. <laughs> nice. Now what's the name of the, of the documentary? It's called down to earth. Nice. That's a good one. I like that. <laughs> Down to earth, yeah. Yeah, I, I've actually seen it, and I quite enjoyed it, and I like the fact that you got very in-depth on a more personal level, and it wasn't just all uh, drama for the sake of drama. It was very much exactly what you were doing to make this happen, which was super cool. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I, you know, I wanted to, uh, in most of the things, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, show people, you know, that, oh, these guys are hero, these guys are superstar. I'm not, you know, I struggle a lot. I, I cried a lot. I had a lot of pain. I suffer a lot psychologically. I got scared as hell. You know, I'm a human being. Sure. And, and that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted to show people, you know, what I, what I went through. And, and I think that's really important because I think one of the things that a lot of uh, uh, jumpers think that they have to portray is this, um, this image that we're badasses and we think we're invincible when I personally get scared shitless of of the sport and what I do sometimes and if it's not scared for myself it's scared for my friends who are really pushing the limits you know uh, I've known you for quite some time and when all that was going on it's always in the back of your mind who I hope he's I hope he's you know taking care uh, so you have that fear for someone sure. else as well and I think people think that they uh -huh. either have to portray this fearless image or non skydivers just assume that we are fearless and that's couldn't be further from the truth this shit gets scared scary exactly absolutely and I it's in, I, agree with you. I, I think it's really important for people to realize that that's one of the reasons that i still consider skydiving to be such a safe sport is because it's filled with people that are scared of what they do <laughs> you know it, and it should be and it's absolutely not, the, the, there's a and i think there's also a big misconception about the difference between fear and panic because people that don't jump naturally assume it's basically the same thing, and it's fucking not. Fear is what keeps Absolutely. me personally sharp and ready to handle what's coming at me. Panic is when you can't handle anything. Panic is the enemy, exactly. but fear is your friend. Exactly. Absolutely. So, yeah, I completely um, agree with you. Now, what other projects have you been pushing towards both in the past and in the future? Have you, have you got any other ones well, that really uh, stand out? Or? I had um, a big project I was working on uh, this year. Unfortunately, um, after the first episode that I was recording, the project got canceled. Uh, we still don't know why. Um, I cannot mention too much in case it could happen in the future. But yeah, it was a really, really big project. Mm. Um, challenging, completely different to the, the world's smallest parachute. Uh, and I hope, I hope that I could develop it in, in the future, whether for a TV network or for a personal um, I would say, um, satisfaction, but, uh, that's pretty much it right now. I think I'm focusing a little bit more into my retirement, into investing what I have in a smart way. And I would not say try to retire from skydiving, but to, to find a plan, a plan B in which I can rely on later on sure. uh, when I become a little bit well, older. Yeah. You know, and I think that that's, that's uh, uh, something that uh, our generation specifically in skydiving really does need to keep in mind. I mean, 
you know, you and I got into skydiving when we were pretty young. I'm 50 now, you know, so um, this is the typically the age when you're a businessman that you're thinking, oh, another 10, 15 years, I'm going to retire. But when you've been a skydiver or a jump pilot for as many years as, as you and I have, <laughs> retirement doesn't exactly. exist. You know, what the fuck is that? You know, exactly. So that's exactly that's when <laughs> we get to look and go, yeah, oh, <laughs> So, yeah, no, I think I think for me it would be a little bit more enjoying. You know, I I always lived out of skydiving. That's you know, like I, I wish I would have fun jump a little bit more, or you know, spend a little bit more of time in inside the tunnel, like you know, learning a little bit more, becoming better. Unfortunately, you know, money is essential for for my life to pay the bills, and you know, I'm married as well, so my wife, you know, I, I just cannot go to a wind tunnel and spend you know ten thousand euros when I have a wife, you know, that is for a normal person, what I call a normal person is um, inconceivable that you spend 10,000 years in a wind tunnel, you know, yeah. when that is a rent for the whole year. Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, let's face it, the average person can't conceive of, of how we live our lives regardless of the money. But when you throw that money into it as well, you tell them what an average skydiver, just a fun jumper, spends over the course of five or 10 years on jumping and people would be horrified. I think you can you can become a pilot pretty much. Yeah. Oh God, yes. Oh, absolutely. And 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 I I think I was a lot like you. I started working in the sport very very quickly in my career, and that's the only thing that kept me from spending pilot money on being a skydiver. Exactly. I spent all the pilot money exactly. on the planes, and I probably should have spent it on jumping. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, actually, you know, actually, it's kind of funny. I'm, I'm, uh, my, my flying career has been so unusual that it's actually kept me in the air when a lot of uh, airlines and stuff were laying people off, and times with the airlines were difficult. The fact that I had a weird flying job is the only thing that saved me, which was fantastic. But, but I think it's weird, you know. Believe me, believe it or not, uh, people that have these kind of jobs that you can move from country to country, I think it's actually more flexible than. Even you know airline pilots. Oh yeah. Oh absolutely. Well, and and to be able to uh, uh, to pick up and and go to another place and be able to do the exact same job basically with no training. All right, where's the drop zone? What are the winds? Pretty doing? much. Let's go. You know. Um, exactly. And exactly. it's it's nice to be at that point. Now, granted, it's a little bit different these days. Regulations in a lot of places. It used to be if you were a jumper or a skydive pilot, it was all kind of barnstorming, you know, under the radar kind of stuff. And now, not so much anymore. Mm -hmm. But still, you're right. There's a lot of opportunities. And as a skydiver, uh, you and I'll never be out of work if we don't want to be. Exactly. Which is nice. Exactly. So <laughs> looking down the road, if, if down the road is just you being a fun jumper, where do you take your career? Where does work things, where does that go? Well, well I think um, I'm still, um, I'm based now in, in Bovets in Slovenia, which uh, I love. And um, now my wife is uh, the new general manager of Skydive Bovets, which is uh, great news. Yes, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I'm sure she's going to do a great job here in Bovets. And um, I opened my own uh, school here. So I'm running the mountain souping school. All the videos that you've seen around now, people flying the mountains, that, that is us. Nice. Um, Mountainsouping.si is our, our website. It's, been in, it's under construction now. Awesome. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm flying the mountains. I'm, we're opening great lines. Uh, we're giving the people the chance to... To change a little bit, you know, in skydiving, you start doing free flying, you get to a point in which you get bored and then you try something different and then you reach a point. In that, and I think mountain swooping right now is giving pretty much every single skydiver, regardless of the experience, that extra rush sure. that they get, um, obviously, by flying close to a, to a mountain. Sure. Now, uh, and you'll have to tell me a lot about this because I've never done it, and uh, I've only, again, seen the video. So the terrain flying mm -hmm. under the canopy, say I come to you as an experienced skydiver and I want to start doing that. Uh, how do you start me out, and what's the progression until I'm, you know, flying with the big boys? Sure. So basically we, we divide all the camps in uh, basic, intermediate, and advanced uh, the basic camp, most of our camps are three days. So we start on a Friday uh, with a ground school. We explain you everything about the valley. We show you videos of the lines, videos of how we run it. And uh, we categorize the lines also in different colors, depending on the gradient and the inclination of the terrain. Uh, we have blue lines, we have orange lines, and we have red lines. 
And yeah, that's, so basically we do a progression. The people come here, they, they, they get all the training that they need to do a, a safe flight in the mountains. We first take them to the blue lines, which are the easy ones, and they can get a little bit familiar to being close to an object and the mountain and, and technique, and they can compare and see how the rear riser inputs are doing and the, all the things related to the flight. And, and they see it and, you know, they get more confident and then they, we start taking them to more um, challenging and difficult lines mm, yeah. uh, with smaller land. land smaller landing areas as well. Now, when you're when you're getting started in something like that, is there a jump number that you've got to, you know, do you have to have a certain license, certain jump number, and a certain specific sure. type of canopy? Sure. So basically, um, we did a lot of tests with different canopy sizes and shapes and crossways, non-crossways. Mm. Um, so basically, we decided to put it at 200 jumps. So that's going to be the minimum requirement. You need to have 200 jumps minimum and a B license to be able to participate in mountain swooping. Okay. Uh, and then from that on, obviously, we're going to do a first jump on top of the drop zone to to measure the skills, to see how we're doing flying in a formation, because we have to fly in a very tight formation before entering the mountain. We want to be as close as possible mm. um, so, so we can, uh, you know, all land together and see where the other person is at all times. Sure. That's, I mean, that's got to be quite challenging, too, to teach people this. I mean, because the the canopy side of things can be quite challenging for people. Yeah, normally that's what we start also with the... Uh, the um, orientation jump in, in, you know, in the drop zone so we can, you know, if somebody is not up to the task or is falling a little bit behind, then we help them out and explain what they're doing. And then we do a run. Um, normally what we do is we have a, a full load, which is a Pilatus Porter, um, four people plus guide. So okay. one guide will go with four people and I will go with the other four people. And we basically, if we have people with really fast canopies, they will go with a guide that has a fast canopy. And if we have a a group that is a little bit more intermediate or beginners, I will have myself a bigger canopy and I lead them with a small canopy as well nice. or, or a fast canopy. Nice. Now, yeah. so I'm assuming that all these uh, uh, lines that you're flying are relatively close to the drop zone, no? Well, yeah, we have, uh, currently we have 16 lines and we're in the process to, of opening another four. Um, but they're pretty much... The the furthest one is 25 minutes drive from the drop zone. Okay. Now, um, so I don't know anything about the airspace there. Do you guys, are you having to get permission from an aviation authority to be able to fly these lines down the mountain? And how do you deal yeah, with, so, you know, air traffic and, and so, all that stuff? Yeah, I mean, it's been a challenge uh, because we're very, very close to Triglav National Park, which is the <laughs> biggest national park Slovenia has. And so we have to ask for permissions to extend the airspace. You know, we have to fly certain mountains because the other ones are not allowed to fly because of the, uh, the animals and the flowers and, you know, the wildlife. Uh, so we have to respect that, which I, you know, I'm completely happy that they let us fly all the mountains instead of the other ones in National Park. Sure. Um, um, basically, we have to pay the farmers every time we land in their, in their properties. Uh, but everybody's been really excited. You know, the farmers are really excited when you land on their backyards and, <laughs> you know, sometimes they clap on you, you know, like, yeah, sure. some celebration. Well, it's so unique. And the vibe, yeah, the vibe in the in the van going back from the landing area to the drop zone is just great. Everybody's so pumped up, you know, and um, talking about the jump and nice. the flight. So, yeah, it's, it's a really beautiful experience. Nice. Now, so uh, say you, you, uh, you're out of the porter, you pitch, and you have a mal. Um, if you end up getting stuck with a malfunction in a situation like that, you're flying over fucking mountains. So what happens? Are you guys using tracking uh, systems on the canopies, or is that an idea just in case? Sure. So basically, uh, the way we work is like uh, the guide always exit last. So you will have the first person, second, third, fourth, and then the guide will be the fifth. If there is a cutaway what's going to happen we have a tracking device on the risers um, that we can track the canopy okay. the person will go to the de designated landing area without running the mountain at all so a reserve right is a reserve right and then um, we have communication with the guide and the pilot and the pilot would locate the canopy roughly and then we'll go and pick it up okay all right so i mean it's, it's a pretty decent system so we, we we don't yeah, we don't, we don't exit on top of the mountain itself. So basically, we go towards the mountain. If we have a problem, we are able to fix it because we have 
plenty of uh, uh, you know clear terrain. We have we have nothing basically. We exit on the valley and we we move towards the mountain. Okay, all right. So I mean, this is this is far from uh, uh, you know uh, you're not just flicking it out and seeing what happens and going where you go. So <laughs> well, you never know. No. Yeah, at the beginning, at the beginning when we started mapping the lines and using devices to see everything, you know, at the beginning it was kind of loud, like that. You know, you had to. To jump out of the plane and you know and check the terrain and see how you're doing and find alternate landing areas in case you had to bail you know that's that's a process that we had to follow to to open the lines you know well and and how much of a process i mean so when you first came up with the idea to go and do that how hard was it to convince people outside of the drop zone to allow this to happen and more importantly how many times did you guys been doing this bandit before you actually got permission Sure. So basically, um, this this uh, product was uh, kind of like developed two years ago. We did uh, the first Tora Tora boogie. Uh, we did the mountain swooping for them, and then obviously this year with all these problems that we're having with uh, the COVID nineteen, it's going to be difficult to see what's going to happen with any skydiving operation. But right. we're going to do some events as well this year, and. Um, and yeah, you know, pretty much, uh, I think mountain swooping is what is, I think it's becoming right now, um, kind of the activity that everybody wants to do. We're receiving a hundred of emails pretty much every week which asking is, for mountain flying, you know, which mountain is awesome. swooping. I mean, that kind of stuff actually yeah. quite appeals to me and I'm pretty damn mellow when it comes to the canopy stuff. I mean, my big day is a 270, <laughs> you know? No, so. but you know, the beautiful thing about the camps is like, you have mountains that will allow you to fly close, but you always have an exit point. So you will have a wall on a side, and on the other side, you have completely clear space. Which is So if you feel that you yeah. Epic. It's epic. Oh, by the way, I just had somebody stop by that uh, actually wanted to ask you a question. He said something about um, when you were doing the smallest canopy in the world thing. And, and hang on, who, who the hell are you? What's going on? I'm Junior. <laughs> uh, Ernesto Jr. just stopped by to say hello. Sorry, I I can't I can't hear anything, guys. What's that? Who is that? Yeah, it's me. It's Junior. What's going on, buddy? Can you hear him? Yo, Fati. <laughs> What's up, buddy? What's going on, brother? How are you doing? Good. Well, no, Fati. Now you're fitter than me, man. You kind of grew up and uh, became fit, huh? No, he's fat. No, I'm so fat. <laughs> how you doing brother good buddy how's how's life well i can't complain i was telling the end that you know i'm living in a paradise and a very chill and happy life and you know, I know simple stuff i get to get to see the photos of you guys of you you know rocking it out some videos and stuff that you post up uh super jealous I need to come out and see you guys soon oh man that's awesome to hear you and uh, congratulations on your wedding i mean you got married on, on me like uh you know, hey, dude, I'm getting married. I don't know what's on the other side of the world. What the, what the hell, man? All right. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, thanks, you, man. It's uh, it's been uh, an adventure for sure. <laughs> it's not. It's nothing that I uh, that I expected. It's it's the best of the best, and you know, every once in a while. That's good, man. That's have, good. You have some bad stuff go on. Happy but... to hear. <laughs> challenging, challenging. It's challenging, yeah, but it's amazing at the same time. So for hey, I love everything. my wife with everything I am. Everything is challenging in life, buddy. Actually, we know that. Huh? you guys have something. <laughs> I, I, it just dawned on me. One of the things that you guys have in common is you're both short fuckers that married really tall women. Tall, beautiful women. Yeah, we got that in common. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What, what, what do you think is that? That what is it telling you, buddy? I'm telling Tell you. Me. Well, well, actually, ask ask Junior because he knows uh, my girlfriend Victoria quite well, and she's taller than me. So. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm fine with it. I got no issue with that. So there's a lot of people that don't know that uh, Junior did some work with you on the smallest canopy in the in the world thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Junior, I mean, Junior was a little ninja, bro. (laughs) Junior was, uh, you know, like this the Swiss Army to, uh, you know, the the toolkit. I don't know how you call it. (laughs) Swiss Army knife. Yeah. Yeah, Swiss Army. Yeah. He he was debugging, man. He was. Filming. He was collecting the canopy when I had a chop. He was massaging me. Uh, Junior was like, <laughs> "I meant to ask, by the way. So you, you had you had said that the uh, you were doing the deployment facing the tail, but w- was the decision to deploy um, basically a direct bag was that so uh, that you were still really subterminal, no no acceleration at all? Yeah. So basically, the the reason ideally we should have used a helicopter and hover it and and basically 
do the same process while the helicopter was in hover. So the, the inflation of the canopy is really symmetrical. Mm. Um, so much and then we, we tried as well with the twin otter and the speed was quite high. And, and basically we went to the, the porter because you can do as little as 45 knots and 50 knots sometimes, I think. Um, and then basically facing the tail because I wanted all, all the time to see that deployment as it was happening. Mm. I wanted to know what was going to happen before. If I would were to exit from a normal, you know, belly to earth position, then the, the, the deployment would happen bef- uh, behind my back and would hinder my ability to see what's happening. Sure. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and I, I, can, I can completely understand. And in the canopy that small, I mean, it's it's zero to holy shit in a blink of an eye. It, it really is. Uh, watching uh, a couple cut, of the cutaways that he Cutting had. up a little bit as well. Watching a couple of the cutaways that he had was was pretty gnarly. Sitting inside the airplane, holding the D bag, and just going, "Oh God, what's going on?" Oh, I bet, I bet. I mean, that had to be really weird for you too, still sitting in the airplane and, and you're watching him go on out. And there's not a damn thing you can do. Yeah, I think on the um, when you cut away, I think you you chopped the 35, didn't you? A number of times, he said. Yeah, the one he he cut away the 35 one of the times right out of the airplane and. Man, it, it before you even knew it, he had gotten around two revolutions and he was above the canopy. It was incredible to see from inside Ooh. and very scary. Well, that must have been a whole lot of fun on your side, Ernesto. Sorry, guys. I just lost you for a little bit there. It's a really poor connection, I think, on my side. Uh, it's because everybody in the world is sitting in their homes fucking streaming Netflix or Pornhub. I guess. I guess so. Yeah. The whole, the whole country right now is either watching The Irishman or they're masturbating. Junior said before, sorry guys, I was oh, kind of like caught in between. said was uh, how, how uh, scary it was from my side watching you when you when you chopped, the one uh, the one time you chopped 30, 35 and you were literally above the canopy and before we knew it, like the canopy was just starting to inflate and you had gone around two revolutions. Oof, that's got to be a ride and a half. Sorry guys, yeah, it's, it's still cutting up a little bit. I'm sorry guys, I can't hear much. No, no, it's all good. Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to let you talk here. I want you to tell everybody if you can if you can hear all the different ways that they can follow uh, the projects that you've got going on, the the drop zone that you're at now and the mountain flying, and once again the uh, the name of your documentary and how they can how they can watch it. Right. So I'm in uh, Wobbets, Slovenia, uh, not Slovakia, Slovenia, close to Italy. And you can follow me on uh, Instagram. Uh, my uh, username is uh, at Ernesto Gainza. Uh, Facebook, and they, again, they, we're still working on the Mountain Swooping uh, website, but it's going to be mountainswooping.si for Slovenia. And then you can find all the information. Also on the website of Skydive Bovets is going to be all the information uh, about Mountain Swooping and all the services that these guys are going to start offering this year. Oh, that's absolutely fantastic. I'll tell you, we'll we'll save it for uh, next time around since we've got a shitty connection this time, but I'm going to want to find out a lot more about the courses involved in doing the mountain swooping and also find out about this other project that hopefully you said you had started and, and had to, to wait. Hopefully that's going to yeah. kick back in and you can tell us all about it. I hope so. I hope so, buddy. I really hope so. Well, Ernesto, thank you so Junior. much, man, for taking the time to sit down. And uh, uh, Junior's is the same thing. It's really good talking to you. Uh, I'm I'm glad that things are going as well as they are, and uh, I hope that uh, everything keeps kicking in for you. Thank you so much, guys. I really, really appreciate the you know the the chance of being uh, uh, kind of in the air. And um, just to tell all the young skydivers, man, keep keep dreaming. Um, you're gonna have uh, tough times in your skydiving career, but. Uh, you can make it. Look at me. Hell if you're yeah, a small guy, from, small guy from Venezuela, you know, yeah, I'm here. You guys, I'm gonna, you're gonna make it for sure. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> man. You're a fucking rock star. You always have been. Man, Thank you, buddy. Love, uh, love talking to you, even if it was just for a couple of seconds, man. It's, uh, it's always good to catch you. Likewise, buddy. Come and visit, man. Come, uh, you know, if you want, if you want to get fat, come here. You're gonna get fat properly. <laughs> All right, done. <laughs> we'll talk soon for sure. All right, all right, we chat us. All right, love you, brother. Likewise. Take care, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. Ciao. All right.
Hey, we're gonna we're gonna keep going for just a couple of minutes, Junior, because uh, uh, it was unfortunately a shitty connection. Yeah, uh, it sucks. I really wanted to catch up with uh, Ernesto a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, no, well, and uh, we had a really good conversation, but too many fuckers jacking off to Pornhub right now. <laughs> They're screwing up the internet, uh, so the connection was not great. God but damn coronavirus, right? Uh, there were a few questions that I wanted to ask him, and and now specifically you, when you were doing the smallest canopy thing. I mean, fuck me, I got to watch from the outside, but you were part of that. Yeah, it was an amazing opportunity, and um, being in a similar situation, pushing the boundaries on a on a special project, and really doing something that nobody else has done. When I did it with the, the world's largest flag, um, it makes me realize a lot about how much faith Ernesto had in me sure. to help him out and to to be in the spot that I was in um, for not just helping him with the deployments of the the canopy every time and holding the the, the d bag for him when he was jumping out, but also uh, to follow behind him and and be you know pretty much right up his ass with a camera. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and and it's uh, um, it, people uh, they I don't think a lot of people understand just what went into that in general. And then I've uh, I've had people asking, well, but Junior was filming him, and I'm like, yeah. But Junior was filming him on a tried, true, and tested canopy, and he was wearing a ton of weights that accentuated the flight character characteristics of his canopy, but they didn't change them uh, in that respect. And Ernesto was flying an untested 35-square-foot canopy. Fuck me. Yeah, for sure. And um, he, he went back and forth um, to to decide what the proper wing would be. I know he was talking with uh, NZ Sports for a while to figure out what to build because obviously the Petras were out and that's what I was flying when I was following him. I was started on a 69 uh, Petra and I wound up going down to, uh, I think it was either 64 or 66. And I was loaded at about 4.0 to, to match up with him. And he was somewhere ridiculous. I think he was at 4.6 or 4.7. Well, how much weight did you have on? Uh, I had about 20 kg on <laughs> at one point just to, so just to be able to stay with him. That's so um, stupid. But anyway, I mean, it was it was an amazing project and it's and it was nice to see the professionalism from his side of things and how seriously he was taking it. He was training oh, hard. Yeah. He went for the G force training. Well, I remember wa- again watching it from the outside. I remember uh, seeing him at one point when it was um, the business you know business hat was on and uh, you guys were taking care of something or, or briefing something and I'm like oh holy shit okay now I get it because it wasn't the the normal Scott ever joking around shooting the shit kind of stuff it was a uh, game on game faces no bullshit super super detail oriented and I was really impressed with that yeah it was um we definitely had our fun <laughs> there was there was a lot of times of him running around in his underwear and joking around in the mornings but uh um I don't when want to, it, I don't, it just, just Ernesto being Ernesto was, he was, you know, joking around and having fun and, and, you know, all of us were to a certain point. I mean, that's part of the fun of having this project is, is having course. these, these moments, uh, with your, with your teammates where you can really just cut loose and have, have a blast. And sure. When it comes time and the gear up starts happening, the packing starts happening, it's, we, we flip the switch and it goes to serious mode and right. it's, it's dangerous. Yeah. Oh, fuck yeah. Well, especially when, again, it's unproven equipment. Um, like I was I was mentioning to him, uh, or asking him, I should say, because I don't know that much about it, but uh, I believe the Velocity was built around a, either a 96 or a 103. I think a 96. I think, yeah, I think it was, I think it was a 96. It was the original. It was the 84, 96, or 103. I don't remember which one. I, I think it was the 96, I though. think it was the 96 as well was the size that they designed the canopy, and then you scale up or scale down. Right. But when you're scaling down from whatever they used that initially all the way down to a 35-square-foot canopy, shit does not match. You know, I mean, it's not just like you're, you know, shrinking it. You're not just reducing the size. You've got to change everything. And the line set and the trims. And so Ernesto had to be the test pilot on every fucking jump. Yep, every jump uh, was a was a testing jump, and he had he had a lot of support from family, from friends, the drop zone. Everybody was was standing behind him and trying to help him the best we could. And um, he had riggers helping out with with little projects. Like he decided to put um, after talking with um, the riggers and in a meeting, um, the the decision was to put the cutaway handle for it um, on the chest trap. Mm. So it was a center because as the centrifugal force picks up. His hands would be go down, would be going down to his side, and it would be easier to come down the front of his body and his chest, 
and catch the the cutaway handle on the way by because <laughs> at that point you've only got one shot at it. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I have unfortunately um, uh, firsthand. Well, not firsthand. I wasn't there, thankfully. Uh, but uh, uh, the owner of Scott F. Tahoe, uh, which was out of uh, Minden Airport. Uh, actually went in under a perfectly good canopy uh, and a spinner, uh, but he was flying. I think the the um, elevation there is something like, I want to say seven or 8,000 feet above sea level, and he was flying a micro mini canopy and ended up in a severe spin and couldn't get to his handles. Well, um, Chris Martin from uh, that was working with Precision Aerodynamics back in the day, they decided to build, I think it was either a 27 27- KS-27, 21 square foot, or was it 21, 21? They never landed it. They were they were playing around with it. And um, I think he was in Arizona somewhere, possibly. Um, I can't remember the, the location, but he went out, mm. had a bit of a line twist, and G'd out and went in under it. Yeah, yeah. No, so it was no joke. I mean, uh, uh, I remember people saying, well, yeah, but Ernesto's not that big a guy, so the smaller parachute. I'm like, no, no. A 35's a 35. Yeah, I'm like, no, fuck you. This is badass. This is ridiculous. And that's the same thing. People people are like, oh, man, but your wing loading was close to his, but it's a 35-square-foot canopy. Yeah, it's a 35-square-foot canopy and untested. So Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, there's a reason it was only landed twice. (laughs) Yeah. All right. On that note, uh, cheers to Ernesto. Cheers. Ernesto, it was good talking to you, buddy. Ernesto, brother, it was fantastic talking to you, and we will definitely catch up to you again. I want to talk a shitload more about this mountain flying. I had a bunch of questions, but we'll wait until people stop messing around. Yeah. All right. Less porn. Yeah, less porn. All right, but that's till later. At any rate, once again, this has been Lunatic Fringe Into the Void, brought to you by the greatest magazine in the known universe. Blue Skies Magazine. Fucking hell, Blue Skies Magazine. Go to blueskiesmag.com. That's where you can subscribe to the magazine. You can submit all your cool shit. You can buy previous issues and a whole bunch of really cool new stuff coming up as well. So check them out. For me, the fucking pilot on Facebook and the fucking pilot.net to subscribe to this podcast on all its different platforms, wherever you get your podcast fix. Uh, and you can get both of the books that I've written. That's the fucking pilot book with Blue Skies and The Accidental Stripper. And I'm actually doing it. I'm recording the audiobook. Bullshit. I actually recorded an entire chapter <laughs> this morning. I fucking hate it. It's miserable, but I'm doing it. It's getting out there. So soon enough, it's going to be print digital and The Accidental Stripper will be in audio form as well. Good. I can finally finish it then. There you go. All right, guys. <laughs> thanks again. We'll see you next time.